Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's time to welcome Miranda Sawyer and Grayson Perry. <laughs> thank you. Yes, thank you. Um, so, yes, a conversation for 45 minutes. Uh, we're going to start with uh, this issue the great white male. You have decided to unpick the great white male, the old statesman, we could call him, for the new statesman. <laughs> How did you arrive at your topic? Um, well, I'm making, I've been making this uh, TV series for Channel 4 for about two years now. Can I just turn around, turn, yeah, we'll turn my like chair that. so I can get a better eye we'll, contact? We'll look at you all, but, you know, um, we need to look at each other. Uh, I've been working on this TV series for, for two years, and, and we wanted to do it about identity, because I'm always interested in the things that sort of hover in, uh, behind our eyes all the time, like taste and class and identity is another thing. And so when we were laying out how we do that, we were thinking, what sorts of people... And the one I really insisted on was the white middle-class male, because I thought that was the hardest one to do. So we managed to get one. Cause, cause <laughs> <laughs> I bet most of them said no. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, what we wanted, though, was some, one of them was, that was somehow having their identity disrupted. And so as we were kind of deciding, the Chris Hune thing was starting to unfold, and we thought, well, should we ask him? You know? And he said yes, very gamely, I think, and maybe bravely. Uh, and so I have interviewed him several times and made a portrait of him. And um, I'm going to be showing it to him later this week, actually, so we'll see. But it was the hardest identity to sort of peel away from right-thinking society somehow. Because the, the white middle-class male has made society in many ways over a long time in his image. And many good things. You know, I'm, I'm not sort of necessarily saying it's all bad, but it's just that... It so mirrors it. It's like, like I say in the, in, the, in the essay, it's like he's the Death Star hiding behind the moon. You know, it's very hard to see it. Yeah. And so when you say, well, what exact qualities are we talking about? You know, and if it's, if it's black lesbians in wheelchairs, it's easy. You can say, well, there's very distinctive things that stand out. Whereas white middle-class men, it's like you're, you can stare at them and stare at them and stare at them and then... And, you just sort of stare through them. They're, they're completely camouflaged. They're like one of those flatfish that lives on the bottom, bottom of the ocean. <laughs> just you know, their eyes. With like just that. the little eyes poking <laughs> out, looking around. <laughs> they provide our kind of norm then, don't they? Yes. Okay. If, the, if they're providing our norm and they have done for so, for so long, why is it that we can't shake them off? 
I mean, one of the things that you point out in your, in your piece is that they're actually only 10% of the population, and yet we can't kind of get rid of them being the norm. Well, they're perfectly evolved to sort of, <laughs> you know, like I say on the cover, you know, look like the ruling elite without trying, you know. <laughs> and of course, you know, it's a self-propagating system in that um, when they're interviewed by other great white men, they will be, they'll be assumed to be more competent than they are, the norms. And it's often privilege, actually, uh, and prejudice, rather, is what I mean. Prejudice doesn't necessarily have its strongest effect at the top. I mean, when I, when I was talking to someone about getting into art school and how prejudice worked on that. And they said, well, if you have a really talented student, they come in, of whatever background, of whatever identity they are, it's obvious they're really talented and everybody agrees they should go in. It's down a few notches. It's the kind of, you've got the choice between, you know, the bolshy working class kid who might not turn up for the second term and the nice middle class girl who, who says all the right things in there, and they're equally kind of moderately talented. The prejudice tends to go towards the nice middle class girl because you know she's going to be easier to deal with. And I think there's that kind of, that kind of prejudice and soft sort of default choices. That's where it happens. Do you think, think that we want him to be there, though, default male? Because a lot of the stuff that he does, I would consider to be quite boring. And I wouldn't really want to do it myself. Well, maybe he's made it boring. I don't know. Because, you know, I was talking. I sat next to dinner the other night next to a female Tory MP. And I said, God, you know, I could never be an MP. It must be the most boring job in the world. And she did a pretty good case of convincing me that it was a really brilliant job. You know, and she, was, <laughs> she really kind of infused me about it. I thought, yeah, I can see. That's great. You know, she really felt like she was making a difference and doing good stuff. And it was very exciting. She got to do lots of interesting things. So maybe we just need to frame it. And I think one of the kind of problems of... Uh, the white middle-class male, is that he, he's sort of branded seriousness in a certain way. You know, and, and very imperceptibly it's happened over a long, long time in that, that if, if, you're, if you go off beam of what he sees as serious and important and, you know, and rational, yeah. you know, suddenly you've gone off, you're a wild, exotic, over-emotional creature. When, in fact, maybe we just need to widen the beam of seriousness. You know, and and there's, there's lots of you know, themes in society... Uh, that are seen as women's business or, you know, business that are to deal with ethnic... You know, maybe th they should all be encompassed in, in that band of seriousness and we should... Um, and that's why I'm a great proponent of kind of positive discrimination. It's because then, you know, the government and such people will take those sort of issues around, say, a more emotional view of life seriously. And so, you know... It, you, it, it, it won't just be the, the economy stupid, it might be mental health stupid or childcare stupid or culture stupid. You do, know. Do, do you think that one of the reasons why you wanted to uh, unpick this character is actually because you, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of doing a kind of box ticking, you fit into that demographic? I do a bit, Slightly. yeah, for sure. You know, I'm 54, male. Uh, <laughs> Uh, white, yes, and I've, I've probably become very middle class in many ways. You know, that I, though I sort of, um, my wife would probably argue with you on that one. Um, uh, because so sometimes it's, the, it's, I always find with kind of tribes of people, no matter who they are, and you know, the, the, the great white male is one of them, it's actually, if you're part of the tribe, it's just tiny little differences that you say, I'm not like that at all. I'm, yeah. you know, well, I'm completely vanity different. of small differences, that's what I called my show. Because of that, you know, Freud found, it comes from, Freud, uh, he said something like the, uh, the narcissism of small differences is that we kind of um, 
dislike the people that are almost like us the most. You know, it's like your neighbours, you know, and uh, because you, you want to feel like you're an individual and you want to differentiate from those people. Oh, yeah, you know, no, I'm not like those people at all, you know. And, and it's true. And uh, within, because, you know, your tribe in many ways, uh, a tribe will rally round like a kind of wagon train sometimes, in, you know, when it feels under siege. Like the art world, it was interesting, like in the 80s and 90s, uh, the art world felt very much under siege from the media. And, oh, my eight-year-old daughter could do that, and it's all un- nobody can understand it. And so nobody in the art world really slagged anybody else off a bit. And whenever an <laughs> art person was in the media, they'd always go, oh, it's great, it's great, it's great that we've got this culture. You know? And now I think the art world needs to relax and start having spats you know, within its own <laughs> little world, because it's got big enough and powerful enough now to um, have a go at each other. I think yeah. it's healthy. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I was thinking about um, about default man um, was that actually he can be a little scary as well. I mean, you know, one of the reasons why he's been there for a long time is not only because he holds power, but because actually he's quite scary. He can be quite rigid. He can be quite shouty. It's a bit difficult to get through to him. Do you think that? Do you think that he's scary, or are we just impressed by the suit? I think it, we, it, it might be projection what we put onto him from because you know it's such a symbol, and that's why I concentrated on the suit. Such you, a I lot. hope you noticed I wore a suit <laughs> just because, because I knew that Grayson wouldn't be wearing you one. You know, he's those sort of unconscious visual things are very potent. You know, they become kind of almost like dream symbols, and so therefore we associate certain sorts of authority and power and memories. You know, our teachers wore suits. You know, and. Uh, Policemen, to a certain extent, when we were younger, wore suits, and, and, and people we were scared of, you know, and the, and the, and the people we see on the TV that have got the authority, they're always wearing a suit. And so we project all that collated uh, fear and anxiety about those figures in, every time we see it reinvigorated in, in the flesh, you know. And, uh, and of course, you know, it's interesting, there's a lovely piece by A. Girl about the suit, you yeah. know, and the fact that, you know, it's, it's not just the suit itself, it's it's growing up wearing one, and, and you kind of... And the collective of the suit. So if we were, I mean, you know, there's a few people, but not very many. Am I the only person in a suit? <laughs> Nobody's got a suit on. But if this was a room full of suited men, it would be a very different feeling. Yeah, but it's like it's but you then become a more collective body as well. You know, and I think that we, we can't kind of... Um, we're pack animals, you know, we're social animals. And so if you're all wearing that suit, you kind of, there's a kind of an uh, unspoken kinship, definitely. When you were younger, who were your, uh, what were your male role models like? Oh, I had absolutely abysmal male role models. You know, no wonder I've got, you know, I'm, pl- you know, I'm fully aware that I'm uh, playing out my unconscious uh, prejudices and projections and transferences onto the world. I make no apologies for that because in many ways that's part of the agenda that I'm talking about is it's okay to do that. You've just got to be aware of them. Um, uh, so yeah, my 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 father and my my my, my mother had an affair with the milkman. Uh, so you know, I've become allergic to cliches. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and my father left when I was four. And you know, he was he, he, uh, he was very afraid of emotional situations. So he didn't want you know. So we didn't we didn't have much contact with him because he probably found it too upsetting that we were upset. And so I didn't see him much at all until I was a teenager. Um, and then uh, my, my stepfather was, you know, he was a... Uh, he'd, he, you know, his background was awful. He had, his father had been a violent thug. And uh, he'd handed it on, like you do, to him. And so uh, he was pretty, un- you know, he was pretty scary. But he was, they certainly weren't middle class. <laughs> 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 uh, 
And uh, one of the times that we've spoken before, you said that actually you projected an almost perfect idea of masculinity, masculinity onto Alan Measles yeah. or Teddy Bear. Yeah, I think I kind of... Well, it, 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 maybe there's something... I mean, there's some, there is some kind of... I sometimes think, what's wrong? Hello, Alan. <laughs> Are you coming in? Come in. Yeah, come on in. Come in. Come sit down. There's room. Where would you like to sit? Sit here. It's a pity you're not wearing a suit. That yeah. would have really made it. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's something in us that has a kind of... Uh, there, there is a kind of natural j- sense of justice sometimes, I think, you have, even as a child. And I think that um, it, it kind of... Um, it, it sort of ma- it, it, it realises there is something wrong in the world. And your unconscious is offering up maybe a, um, a kind of way of seeing justice done in the world. And... Maybe I felt as a child, this isn't right. And so I, I, I went into my, the sort of toy box of my unconscious and sort of, I'll project this onto Ted. He'll be this perfect leader. You know, and he, he was. He was a perfect leader. He was like the, the king of my world. And he never lost a motor race. He may have been shot down in his fighter plane a few times, but he always survived. And I played his bodyguard, which, you know, in retrospect, was a very odd role to assign to myself. But I played his bodyguard because I had to protect this sort of very precious, intangible, surrogate, imaginary male, you know. And so um, it was quite a potent symbol, yeah. But he, that, you know, he, 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 he did have pretty much many of the qualities I regard as... Uh, it was infallible, though, you know. Yeah. But he, 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 was, a kind, he was a benign dictator, which <laughs> is what you want in a way, you know. The, the definition, I think, one of, the, one of the ones I've heard of a good leader is love plus boundaries, and you can't have one without the other. You've got to be able to say no, but you've also got to have empathy. And that's essentially parenthood, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah parent is a leader of the family, yeah, surely. One of the, uh, you've got various people writing in, in the magazine. There's a very beautiful uh, kind of personal essay from Robert Webb uh, of Mitchell and Webb. And one of he, what he's talking about is actually very similar things that you've just talk, talked about, about having uh, not odd uh, father role models, but father role models that that he couldn't relate to. And then as he got older, he realised this person that he thought he held in such high regard but was also frightened of was just a man, was yeah. just an, an ordinary person. Do you think that, um, in, given that we're talking about default males, do you think that sometimes it's not that men don't know how to be men, but they find it quite tricky to be fathers? I think the male role is very sort of heavily policed and it's very difficult and I think that many many men have trouble adapting to the very narrow role that's handed them by not only their parents uh, but by their peers and by sort of wider society I mean if you ask a parent what would you rather have a tomboy or a sissy you know very few of them would say oh I'd love a sissy I'd love a little I'd love a little boy that ran around in a tutu and, and wore pink and makeup the whole time I'd love that well, their mum's <laughs> probably quite like that. <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah, but the, 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 the norms are pretty. I think are established, you know. And, and uh, I think that um, uh, the the role is 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 quite. It's, it, I think many men feel they don't fit it, and it gives them difficulties. But as they get older, because they they're, they're handed on this sort of role, and they might be, they might. That's why I called my talk when I, which I gave for the men's festival. Men sit down for your rights. Because I thought maybe, you know, women stand up for your rights. 
men, maybe there is a, there's a whole bunch of rights that you're not taking advantage of. They're just the rights that you don't see, perhaps, clearly as rights, you know, because they're not things that are enshrined in law. They might be things that are soft, like you know, the, the, the ability to be vulnerable. You know, there's not, there's not going to be a law that says, you must be vulnerable. You know, you, but, so it, it's something that, that all those things that men need to take that territory that men need to move into... It might be much less tangible and, and much more to do with our emotion and our unconscious. Yeah. Um, there's other stuff within the magazine. There's a very beautiful selection of photographs by Martin Parr, who I know that you're a huge fan of. And there's one that I found particularly poignant. Where, where he is, a, in inverted commas, a great white male. He's a teacher at um, a public school, and he's standing in a staff room. And he has a suit on, he's holding a cup of tea. He looks, I cannot tell you how defeated he looks. He looks so defeated, doesn't he? And yet he is, by all accounts, a great white male. Yeah, I'm sure he, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he got bullied. He's probably sort of just had a terrible day in the class. Yeah, he looks he's like been he's had bullied this awful to death. Class. I mean, you know, we, we had teachers who looked a bit like him. <laughs> they always had a little bit of grease on the back of their collar, you know. And uh, yeah, they were the ones that got punched. Yeah, they had a tough time. Well, you, you know, know, public school, maybe they just get ridiculed and not punched. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why did you choose Martin Parr to be in there? Well, I've always loved his work. Um, I know him. And it, for me, you know, he, you know, his work sort of often pivots around class beautifully. And, of course, he, in many ways, you know, he's a middle-class man himself, yeah. but he's ultra-sensitive to it. And it's, again, he has got a clever... He's got such a clever eye at making the ordinary, ordinary look kind of grotesque, or almost like a, he makes the most banal British scene look like a sort of Jeff Koons sculpture, you know, and it sort of leaps out at you in all of its garish, psychedelic, sort of tasteless glory. And I think that's, you know, if you can do that with a man in a suit and they kind of, he always gets the red flash of their kind of alcoholic faces, you know, <laughs> and that kind of, you can, he can, you know, he probably beams in on people who've got a particular class face. You yeah, know, he seems it, to spot them. Yeah, he's very highly tuned to that sort of thing. And you asked quite a lot of people to kind of define what they thought um, the great white male was. And I was interested in Tony Parsons' reaction. It's just everyone had a little short uh, kind of idea of what they could, where the great white male was going. And he was incredibly defensive about the great white male. Well, he's the kind of un unelected leader of the geezers, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> he probably sees that as his role that he's taken on, you know, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, I think he's, you know, in, I suppose I can understand where he's coming from because if you're going to, you can't, I felt in many ways, you know, that I, I was sort of get, I didn't want the, people, the great white male in many ways to feel got at, but, you know, I just thought there's a, there's a natural balancing out we've got to do. We've got to go through this period of balancing out, you know, like. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, somebody said that, you know, uh, authors, when they use the female pronoun, are kind of rebalancing the kind of uh, the natural uh, default of using he all the time. Yeah. And in the same way as I think, you know, we need a few articles and magazines like this just to sort of balance it out. But at the same time, change ain't going to happen unless we're empathetic to the male. 
Because if we're going to have um, uh, positive discrimination and, and, and class, race and gender are going to balance up in our society, it does mean there's only a limited number of places at, in those powerful positions. And poor old default man, you know, he's going to have to, <laughs> he's, he's gonna have to give up. And, you know, it's like whenever we talk about class mobility, we always talk about, oh, it's great, you know, these wonderful working class people are going to get all these jobs. They forget that the middle class people have got to give up the jobs and go down. You but know, then and that's the you've got to talk them down. That's the classic ooh, kind ooh, of thing. Cooks with cakes. That's like the classic um, feminist argument, isn't it? It's not that you want great women to get to the top. It's you want kind of slightly rubbish women also, because there's it's quite rubbish men up there. As yeah, well. exactly. That's when you know you've won. Yes, exactly. <laughs> when when mediocre, the opportunity to be mediocre is equal opportunities, <laughs> then we will know we have won. Uh, shall we talk about watches? Because, as you can see up there, it says cars and watches. Yeah. Um, not messy like feelings. And this is what it <laughs> says here. And then shall we open this? Shall we open the new section? And look at the first advert. Because the first advert... <laughs> is for a Rolex. Yeah. <laughs> I just think, have they not got mobile phones? Like, well, why would they bother? The, the, the watch is a very interesting cultural artefact now because it's often, or usually, the only piece of jewellery a man will wear. And it is rooted in function. And men love function because it's... They would never admit they liked it just because it had lots of sparkly bits on it and knobbly bits on it and it was big and shiny. And <laughs> They would never admit that. No, 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 I need, I need that time. I need those lap times, you know, when I'm in my sports car. Or I need to know what altitude that I I need to go to. right really uh, far down in yeah, the water. Exactly. And so... Any kind, and if you look at men's clothes, they're usually, they're, there's a word, one of my favourite words, is skewermorph. And skewermorph means a previously functional feature that has become decorative. And men are pretty much skewermorph. And suits are they're, that. Men themselves are pretty much skewermorphs, <laughs> you know, in many ways. <laughs> they're like those ants, so after one of them has mated with the queen, they all fall to the ground and wriggle. <laughs> Just wriggle their legs <laughs> Sorry, bloke, sorry. I mean, I but I mean, um, <laughs> no, but... Um, yeah, why, you know, it's not pink for girls and blue for boys anymore. It's pink for girls, camouflage for men. You know, they like... You know, no, I, when I talk about this, when I did my men's tour, I found a picture of boys' training knickers, you know, like which they wear just after nappies, when they're getting mm. out of nappies, that were camouflaged. <laughs> and I thought, they're starting early, conditioning yeah, them that they're not allowed to like something um, because it looks nice. They're, they've got to have a, this spurious idea. So, like, you know, uniform, you know, men's stuff is always referring to some sort of uniform... Uh, or functional kit, and uh, that starts very, very young, uh, because um, boys are always judged by what they do somehow, and that is inferred by that, and women are judged by how they are, how, what they look like, how they be, and I think that's, that's one of the things, the sort of default um, attitudes that are, go from birth, you know, like just the way someone, Robert Winston, when he did that program about you know, the Millennium uh, Babies, uh, he shows, uh, he, he gives a, a, a child to a couple and he doesn't tell them what gender it is. But, and then, oh no, rather, he, 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 it's a girl, but they tell him, he tells them it's a boy and they treat it completely differently. And then he t says it to another couple and, and it's like, you know, it's like, oh, look at him kick, always oh, kicking. Oh, isn't she pretty? Oh, like that, yes. you know. And it's from birth. No wonder it's such a powerful thing because, of course, those first two years are the times when we're imprinted with that non-verbal information that is our absolute bedrock of who we are. 
But then also, I mean, it continues. I have a small girl who absolutely loves princess stuff. I can't get her out of it. I'm not a princess. She has no, <laughs> she has no uh, influence from me. But it's to do with being surrounded by other girls yeah. who rate. She knew that pink was a, a kind of had currency before she knew what pink was. Yeah. Did you say, is that pink? Yeah, it's very, I mean, but you've got to remember that it's tiny little sort of nuanced things that happen to us day to day to day. It's not sort of some big statement. Mm. It's the drip, drip, drip of influence in our every movement, in our eye contact, the way we deal with people that is influencing them. Um, given that you don't camouflage yourself, Viz, um, do you find that uh, you can go through life easily uh, when you have a frock on, or do you, is it harder? Well, going around in a frock, mm. it's harder in nearly every way. Mm. I mean, you know, you, you, you just, it's uh, sometimes not as comfy, it's not as practical. Um, you get looked at all the time. And, you know, if you're me as well, you get pestered a bit sometimes as well. So I have to really curate when I'm going to be in a dress and where I'm going to be. But people on the whole are very friendly. I was in Italy dressed up recently, you know, and I don't get it, but the person who's, my friend who's walking a little bit behind me, they sort of see this wake of people going... <laughs> <laughs> like that. But I never get it. But even in because Italy is, I was quite surprised in Italy because it's what they call a positively uh, polite culture, which means they'll make the effort to in engage with you as opposed to Britain, where they'll make the effort not to engage with you. And um, uh, they, I was quite surprised that they, no, I didn't, I was in this town for two or three hours in a, wearing a nice little Pucci style number. And um, maybe that's what all, I got, the right all I got was one nice wink from a, from a woman. <laughs> <laughs> You have said in the past that you uh, initially, or one of the reasons you uh, started wearing uh, frocks was you felt, I mean, A, it was a, a sexual thrill, but B, it was also a, maybe a way to get in touch with feminine emotions that you felt slightly I think unconsciously. From. I certainly never um, co you know, thought that at age 12. Mm. I mean, and that is the crux thing, is people say to me, isn't dressing up as a woman, you know, isn't that a rather crude, simplistic way in order to access you know, a, a different emotional uh, world. And I kind of go, I didn't decide to be a tranny when I was a sophisticated post-therapy adult. <laughs> you know, I decided to be a tranny when I was like probably, you know, a, well, a child, yeah, with a very simplistic view of the world. And, though, you know, and unconsciously that drip drip was having the effect on me. And, and, it, and it was saying women get this sort of attention or play this sort of a role. And uh, I would like, wouldn't mind a bit of that action, you know. Do you think sometimes that wearing uh, frocks disguises your competitiveness? Oh, God, I am the, the most... I, don't, I mean, I am such an alpha male, you would not believe it. <laughs> you know, that's why I'm a competitive as a tranny. I'm more <laughs> empathetic than you. I, <laughs> I am hideously competitive. I, you know, I, I enjoy being competitive. It's great. It's very important. I mean, you know, as an artist, in some ways... It, you can't necessarily be seen as being sort of nakedly competitive. Um, but you know, when I'm given the opportunity, put me on a bicycle. You know, I did I did mountain bike racing for many years, and I can remember my first race, and it was like great. I remember first person. I, I started at the back because I didn't know how good I'd be, and I started overtaking people quite quickly. I was going, yes, this is great. I can overtake people legitimately. I piss on your lack of ability, and it was like I was oh, I was hideous. And people, I used to. Have you got over that now? I no, basically. <laughs> well, if I'm out on the downs now on my mountain bike, you know, I, I almost wish I could have my age on my back so that as I pass the people, they would know they were being <laughs> humiliated by a 54-year-old. 
And there's all, it's like one of my favorite tactics is as you're coming up the hill behind them, you kind of wait, hang back a little bit and get your breath back. And then when you pass, morning, nice day for a cycle, isn't it? <laughs> as, you, like, as you pedal past. <laughs> and they're going, I think it's okay to be competitive if you're aware. I mean, a lot of things, you know, it's good to be aware of what you're like, because then if, if it's not working for you, you can change it. You know, and, and, and you know, being competitive, for me, it's worked. It's, it does okay. Um, one of the things that you also argue in the, in the magazine is about the uh, nature of a default white male because he is rational and stuff like that. The emotions are repressed and come out kind of sideways in perhaps yeah. in passing weird laws or, or things like that. Um, but one of the things that, you know, we are supposedly told that made Britain great is the, the idea of a stiff upper lip. And sometimes I worry that if you let all these emotions out for these, you know, particularly young men, what you'll just get is violence. Yeah, I think that, I think I thought that when I went to group therapy, I would basically spend my time shouting and taking the piss out of people. But actually what I found <laughs> was, pub. because, for the very reason is because that sort of nice side of my emotion had been suppressed, it came out heavily. They called me Mr. Ice Cream Man. <laughs> you know, and, and I think that you might be surprised that actually... Uh, you know, the, the violence is an acceptable expression of emotion, you know. Um, I had a very interesting conversation with a sociologist when I was making the Taste series, and she, and we, and she said, um, one of the things I hate, she was from uh, Sunderland herself, and one of the things she said, one of the things I hate is when they talk about Northerners being friendly, she said. It's bollocks, she said. What it is, is they're more open. But that's across the whole spectrum of their emotions. <laughs> because most, most, people, most people are nice you know, most of the time they're polite and, and respectful. But, you know, they're, they're going to be more, you know, they're, they're going to be more likely than a southern person to tell you they hate you as well. Or punch you. Or punch you, yeah. So, you know, that is... But I, I think that, um, you know, when you know, the watershed moment in many ways was that the sort of Diana's funeral. Because mm. the middle class were horrified, all these people crying. It was like, it wasn't British. And I think, in a way, since then, through things like reality TV and that, now we're becoming gradually... I mean, these things take a long time to change. You, know, you can't expect the switch to be thrown and suddenly we're, like, you know, all blabbing at everything and being completely open and, and, and uh, emotionally literate. They, these things take, are seismic. They take a long time to change. And uh, I think it's great that, the, uh, that, that we're having these sort of conversations, though. Yeah, which, you're, obviously, you are when you're in your magazine. Um, Martin Amis, you had a chat with Martin Amis, and oh, I know yeah. that you were a massive fan of his uh, early works when you were younger. Yeah. And he, I think, uh, in his early work, seems to express that testosterone-fueled, slightly aggressive nature of masculinity that actually is quite appealing to kind of anyone in their 20s, really, because yeah. you're, you're quite, you know, fueled like that at that time. He th said that he thinks that default man is going to head for a time in the wilderness. Do you think that that's true? Well, there might, the pendulum might swing, you know, like we've got these people here with 50-50 T-shirts. You know, in a, in, a, in a just world, it might go mm. over to sort of 30-70 and then back again. 50-50 <laughs> is about Parliament getting half and half women yeah, and men. Parliament is just one thing. I mean, it's like it, the, the, the disparity in other branches of, uh, like in CEOs in big companies is even, and film directors. Yeah, 90%. You know, it's it absolutely uh, much worse in terms of balance. Um, so... 
Uh, sorry, I've lost the plot. Well, yet. because he was Martin Emerson basically thought he that default man was heading for a time in the wilderness. I just thought he was talking about himself actually, <laughs> 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 rather than kind of anyone else. No, he was quite sweet. I was quite surprised how sweet he was actually. <laughs> Yeah, little Martin. Little Martin. Little Martin. <laughs> um, but um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, I think we've got. Um, you know, you can't kind of. I think that in a in a, uh, a, a good way of doing it, you've got to kind of see there's qualities that the de- default man might be good that we can learn from. You know, I, I don't want to diss it all. Yeah. You know. Um, he said one of the things that came out of that conversation, which I thought was interesting. He said, "Oh, default man doesn't have the stranglehold on art or culture." You know, he implied that actually it was great and anybody could uh, succeed in that. But then you pointed out that actually, although 75% of the people who come in to do an art degree are female, the art that you tend to see tends to be male. I think there's a lag as well. You know, in that in that we're, we're we're kind of dealing with uh, people who are further up the ladder and mm. they come from a different era. And, uh, you know, maybe in the future when more women become more powerful. Because, look, uh, we're already getting directors of major art institutions like Penny Curtis at the, um, the Tate Britain and uh, Vona Blasnik and um, uh, thingy at the Serpentine Gallery. Um, <laughs> Julia Payton-Jones. <laughs> Julia Payton-Jones. <laughs> sorry, I forgot your name, Julia. Sorry, sorry. But, you know, there's, there's, there's increasingly uh, directors of galleries are being female. And once they're sort of, you know, hopefully they will... Encourage yeah, and it's noticeable. I'm a, a, I do some work for the Tate, and one of the things that they they've suddenly panicking panicking about because obviously they have to represent art for the whole left by art for the whole nation is that they suddenly thought, oh my god, we never got any art by women. Mm. I mean, then they're con- they are literally panicking about it and having to buy stuff that they should have, you know, bought yeah. years ago. And you know, the, 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 and particularly in the past, it was much much worse, and so. There's not the kind of uh, women who were given the opportunity to flourish in the past, and therefore they didn't make such an impact on their career, and they probably didn't make so much work. And, you know, and so that's sad, you know. But um, in the future, you know, well, we'll see. It will <laughs> gradually change. <laughs> we hope. Um, okay, because of the, I'm going to ask uh, two more questions, then I'm going to throw it open to you, lovely audience. Um, but I th- suddenly thought, oh, God, it's a new statesman. And I, I had a conversation with... Um, one of the people that works there, and she said, we must mention politics, it's a political magazine. So I thought, okay, right. So I have, oh a, I have political questions. Oh, God. Um, first, <laughs> if all politicians appear to be the same, which I think they do, I think there's not... Do they? Appearance-wise, I don't think Nick Clegg seems that different no, looking. I mean, they're they're very boring dressers. The, the yeah. more powerful they get, the more boring they get. That's an yeah. interesting thing. Yeah, but what do you see a difference in them? I mean, really... A lot of people say nowadays all politicians are the same, so why vote? That's what the old Russell said, wasn't it, when he was doing this job last week? Yeah. Um, uh, I think that there is a problem in that they are not particularly uh, easily pulled apart at, at, a, at a level. They might have, you know, microscopically different sort of party policies, you know, but in terms of what they look like and the kind of way they present it. I mean, one of, my, one of the things I'm always looking out for is the difference between process and content. So, you know, they might be saying things that are slightly different, but they all do it in the same, same way, way. Yeah. you know. And uh, I think that that's, that's where, you know, a more diverse parliament or any group would has that because they'd have a different style of doing it. You know, and I think that that would be important because you know, there's often a talk about the sort of bear pit aspect of parliament, um, 
mean, in some ways, I'm quite proud of that. I like that, the fact that we have a like to have an argy-bargy, but some people might find that very intimidating and, or not, you know, they might not have those skills or something. Yeah, in the, actually, in one of the interviews in here, there's a, an interview with a, a man who, in Iceland, became ele- got elected. He yeah. stood as a joke. He stood at a party called the Best Party, and one of the tickets he stood on was that everybody could have free swimming, and they would be have a towel provided, and women would have free flights. And anyway, he got in, and then. Uh, but what was really amazing about him is that he acknowledged that some of the things, the decisions he had to make was actually quite, were actually quite difficult. So journalists would say to him, what do you think about this? And he'd go, I don't know, I haven't researched it yet. And they'd say, no, you have to make a decision, you're a man. Don't be like... <laughs> <laughs> they literally told him, this is in Iceland. In my head, Iceland, everyone, everyone's really right on in Iceland. Um, but they said that, don't be like a woman. You ha- women take ages to make decisions and they see both sides of the argument. You have to just make a decision. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, it, it is, I mean, I think, certainly, I don't know if there's, there's research that, uh, for instance, when people go shopping, the people who shop for the perfect thing um, are less happy than the person who just says that will do. You know, the, 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 all the studies show that they are. And maybe there's an element of that with Parliament sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> that one will do. That will yeah. do. It was in the ballpark. You know, <laughs> let's just move on. We made the decision. Let's not pontific- pontificate about it. I'm bored now. But, yeah, um, I don't know, I'm not a politician. God, I wouldn't want to be. OK, well, that's my next question, my next political question. Are you going to stand for Mayor of London? There you are. No, got, they've got less- one tranny who's talking about it. They don't want another one. <laughs> That would be funny, though, wouldn't it? But, uh, yeah, but no, I'd, I've got no uh, ambitions to be, go into politics because I know that I'd, I just, I'd be so bored. 